So we are here today with special guest star, uh, Gabrielle Marcalti. We don't do a lot of guest stars in the past on our podcast, so thank you very much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's 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 a privilege. I, I don't know that I can quite live up to the uh, to the star billing, but well, yeah. I hope I don't let you down. I you know it's tough to fill James's seat. I won't lie. I, very few people are capable of that, but we'll give you a shot, just this once. All right, so. I have lots of questions for you today, and I think it's only fair because you are the man who gets to ask everybody else questions. Like, I've listened to your podcast, I've seen you on TV, you ask a lot of questions, but you don't necessarily answer them about yourself. Okay. So, uh, let's let's get stuck in here. First of all, where did you grow up, sir? So, I was born uh, in uh, Milan, um, precisely at the Clinica San Carlo, which whose car park uh, serves as the overflow car park for uh, <laughs> San Siro okay. on, on match days. Uh, and then when I was three years old, my family started moving around the world. I lived in uh, suburban Chicago in a place named Kenilworth. Yeah. I lived in Warsaw, Poland. Um, and that was uh, behind the Iron Curtain during something called the Cold War that uh, millennials will have no clue about. Um, and then uh, after that, I lived in uh, in Germany, in Frankfurt. And then I lived in suburban New York, in Westchester County, Bronxville, New York. And then I lived in Tokyo for four years. And then I moved to London, where I graduated high school. And then I went to college and grad school in the United States. Right. And, and did you choose Penn intentionally, or was that like the last possible place that would accept you? Uh, it was, <laughs> thank you, thank you. No, 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 I, I did choose Penn uh, intentionally. Um, and uh, I'm a proud Penn alum, uh, like the President of the United States and others. Oh, wow. I actually did not know that bit, but uh, thanks for that. Um, so you're, you're a pretty smart guy, and, uh, and you had a very interesting upbringing, but why choose journalism? Good question. So... It was almost really by chance. I mean, in the ball. No. All right. So <laughs> ever since I was a kid, I was, I was into, I, I, I loved, I loved reading. I loved, actually, I loved long form magazines. Um, I loved, I loved the New Yorker. I, I, I got my New Yorker subscription back when I was maybe 13 or 14 years old. And, um, and it was a really big deal because I lived in Japan at the time. So it sort of wow. get there like months late. Yeah. Um, but I had a teacher who kind of got me into it and says like, this is a good magazine story. And, and no, I mean, I read other magazines too. And I wanted to be one of those, you know, guys who has a big expense account and works for the New Yorker in the wood paneled office and kind of like has, you know, writes like three stories a year, but spends months on it. I don't think those jobs exist anymore. No, but they, they're um, amazing. And the stories the, of those guys and that era and the expense accounts are, are fantastic. Uh, you know, it's not just like Hunter S. There were a number of people that, that had sort of these these profile roles. And and people who like live in the are aware of the modern media world are just aghast that this was even possible. Yeah, well, I mean, back then, that was also the era when magazines like The New Yorker, Vanity Fair would would kill more than half the stories that they commissioned, right? I mean, to get into the magazine, it was a really, really big deal. Yeah. Um, look, those jobs don't exist anymore, like I said. And, you know, after uh, after grad school um, in, in New York, at Columbia, I 
at the time, people are saying, oh, well, journalism's dead, you know, it's so hard, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and in reality, it's just kind of funny because the situation was much better back then than it is today, uh, but probably much worse than it was a decade before that. Um, I, I'd been to the Olympics in Atlanta in the summer of 96, uh, basically by, you know, writing to every news outlet I could think of and saying, look, you know, I'll drive myself down to Atlanta from New York. I, I speak English, I speak Italian speak some German, some Spanish, so I'll do whatever you want for me. Please just get me uh, a credential, a bunk at my at my friend's house. Um, so, in, like, you're, in, you're the perfect Olympics reporter here in that, like, you're a polyglot. You can speak a bunch to, like, different people in their own languages and, and potentially get more robust stories. Well, yeah, this was the, I mean, even though I, I ended up working for a wire service there, so we didn't do too many robust stories, but we did, you know, a lot of quotes, a lot of immediate mixed zone reaction um you know a lot of kind of the the bread and butter that then serious writers use to go and build their own stories sure but it was it was tremendous you know it was a tremendous learning experience for me and career-wise it also helped because i i met um some guys from sports illustrated and i met some guys from corriere dello sport italian sports daily and you realize so much in life is about being in the right place at the right time um, and as it happened, this, that summer was a summer of 96. It was the first summer post-Bosman uh, when all of a sudden uh, a bunch of foreign players started coming to the Premier League. Uh, a lot of them uh, were coming from, from Serie A, Italian ones like, like Viali and Di Matteo, but, but also a bunch of foreign ones who, who played in Italy and, and spoke Italian. So there was a confluence of that. There was a confluence of the fact that the Premier League was finally spending uh, a little bit of money there was a confluence of the fact that suddenly everybody had a cell phone and they were generally happy to answer it at all wow. times, which I can tell you isn't the case today. <laughs> there was a confluence of the fact that I'd already, you know, I graduated high school in London, so I kind of knew my way around. There was a confluence of the fact that my girlfriend at the time uh, wanted to move to London. So post-Olympics, I said, all right, bye-bye New York. Let's give it a shot, you know, in London. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that and in that first season you know i was i was kind of the same same age or even a little bit younger of of a lot of these you know the a lot of these players who had been dropped into the strange land called english football and i can tell you that back then it was entirely different you know there, there were no player liaison officers um you know i don't want to drop names but you know I, you might have a player all of a sudden, you know, needing a plumber and, <laughs> you know, they might call me. Or I, I, I was going to say, Gab, you could drop names because you've written some books about these people that right. presumably had their involvement. So it's not really, you know, keeping but, it on the work. Yeah. And I think you might find some of those stories are in, are in the books. But you had this weird situation where a lot of English clubs were spending a lot of money and they really had no idea what they were doing, not just in terms of of scouting, you know, you all heard the stories about Sunis and Southampton and, and Alidia and whatever, but just in terms of, all right, how do I create a cultural fit when all of a sudden, nearly overnight, half my dressing room is foreign? Yeah. And, you know, when we're used to, it's everything. It's, it's from diet to what the training grounds were like. And so if you had that little edge, if you could communicate across the two cultures, and I didn't just speak English, but, you know, I'd also lived in London. I'd also finished school in London. I'd also... Um, you know, I, I went to watch a fair amount of, uh, of, of football, 
um, in my last years in school in London at, 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 the old, at Stamford Bridge, uh, at Highbury and at, uh, at Craven Cottage, most, mostly. And I would knew what that was. And so I, I kind of, I wasn't, you know, I, that gave me a huge edge. It helped me build relationships, which, you know, some of which continue to this day. Cool. All right. Um, so I know you, your Wikipedia page says that you've written three books and I believe that this is probably a lie. It is a lie. Okay. How many books have you actually written? I've actually written. It's four. It's four. Um, Only four. Yes. It's okay. So I've written, I wrote, I ghosted Paolo Di Cagno's biography. Okay. I wrote uh, The Italian Job with Gianluca Vialli. I wrote an unauthorized biography of Fabio Capello. And I wrote an unauthorized biography of Claudio Ranieri. Um, I also did, and I think on an hourly basis, this might have been one of the most lucrative um, <laughs> jobs I ever did. And I still have a credit, I think, on the book. So you don't strike me as a MotoGP guy, Ted, but... Uh, this is true. There's a guy named Valentino Rossi, who was a very famous uh, MotoGP guy. I am not a MotoGP person at all. I have no idea how a motorcycle works. I just imagine it's like a, a bicycle with a car engine on it, but it's probably more to it than that. Sounds safe. But anyway, he had a very colorful agent, and this guy wanted to publish his book in English, and he had gotten an enormous advance to go and do that. But one thing led to another. They were way late. They had problems with translators. And suddenly I got a call from my literary agent who's like, look, there's 130,000 words to translate. There's six days to do it. <laughs> They're desperate. Um, and I got paid what for me at the time was and felt like an enormous amount of money. It also literally meant that I was literally you know, spending 18 to 20 hours a day uh, translating this book from uh, Italian into English, especially a book, not just the Valentino Rossi stuff, but also having absolutely no clue about all that, because there's a lot of technical stuff in there. Right. Is Valentino Rossi, as I later discovered, like Formula One drivers, these guys aren't just people who drive or, or ride. These guys are people who you know could be mechanics. So there's all this technical stuff in there that I have to swat up on, and I had a lot of people helping me, but, but yeah, I was able to do it. So no, I didn't write that book, but I translated that book, and uh, it was an enormous – I know from James I'm not to swear, so it was an enormous uh, pain in my backside uh, to do, but uh, a different experience and, and very fulfilling. We don't let James boss us around on this show. You can swear however you want to, sir. It's not ESPN. We're, we're, we're not the worldwide leader. We are a uh, piddly little stats bomb. Um, so going back to the, those early days, uh, like I know that there was like a massive culture shock. And we keep hearing um, you know, that the media was different then. The, the exposure of players was different then. There's no social media back then. A lot of stuff like never gets out. But I, I know and I've, I've talked to some people like from that era who <laughs> the foreign players came over and they were just like, I mean, did they were shocked at the amount of drinking and, yeah. and the, the culture that was going on in the English side versus like how things operated, especially because Italy was like really quite far ahead of the curve at that point in, in terms of diet and players taking care of themselves. Like fill me in there. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we say Italy, I, I mean, it's, you know, Italian football, a lot of these guys who, who were playing in Italy at the time weren't necessarily Italian, but they were very much, you know, Italy was pretty much at the cutting edge the time. I mean, Gianluca Vialli tells a story about, um, you know, when he just arrived at Chelsea and, and being in the showers and 
you know, while he's showering. I've told him it sounds really slightly sketchy when he puts it out like this, but he said he couldn't help but notice, you know, uh, his teammates. And, you know, one of them would have a beer belly. The other one would have no definition uh, on, on, on his arms. Another one would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, an enormous jiggly backside. <laughs> and he'd be like, wow, these guys are professional athletes. And, again, part of the reason is there were very few specialized sports science or, or fitness people, uh, if at all, in the top flight in England. There was that culture of drinking that, that we talked about before. But I think even, you know, even people who didn't drink or didn't drink much, and believe it or not, there are English players who didn't drink or didn't drink much, you know, they, they, they simply didn't have the information. You know, um, you know, you've got stories from back then. I remember, you know, Niall Quinn talking about at Sunderland, and obviously I guess Niall was kind of covering – you know, the time when he was a player at Sunderland with later being an executive at Sunderland. But he talked about, you know, what great fun it was on your from uh, from uh, from an away game. What they would often do, especially if they'd won, they'd go to some so some bar in the countryside or uh, like, a, you know, a village pub somewhere. And they would have they would they would have a lock in. Right. So you play at three o'clock and then maybe like seven or eight in the evening. And instead of going back home to Sunderland. They go to some of this country pub and have a lock-in, and everybody would get absolutely hammered, and you know they'd all pile onto the pub at two or three, into the bus at two or three in the morning, and you know they'd get home, you know, at X time the next day, and it would all be great for team spirit and team bonding. And then he I've kind never of heard noted, this story. This is amazing. <laughs> you must have heard it, right? No, no, this is, this I, is new. I, I, I've heard now Quinn tell it, but um, and then what he found was that years later during the Premier League era. You know, there'd be times when, and again, and I don't know if he was a manager at this page or an executive, but he'd be like, all right, guys, you know, great win away at Charlton or whatever. Hey, how about, you know, we go at the lock-in at, you know, the old boot or something. And he'd get players complaining. And he'd get players saying, actually, boss, uh, how about we don't do that? Yeah. Because we kind of want to get back to our families. And, you know, maybe you didn't notice, but, you know, Mohammed doesn't actually enjoy those lock-ins because, you know, he doesn't drink, <laughs> <Yes>. you know. <laughs> and actually, it's just the four of you there of Irish descent and maybe the odd Scandinavian guy who sit there and pound and the rest of us sit around the back and look bored. And so they've moved to other sort of team bonding exercises. You know, we've heard of teams going paintballing. Um, it's a bit of the evolution of the game, you know, that, um, and, and I think, you know, for all the criticism that sometimes the, the, the Premier League gets, I think it's done a better job than most in in evolving, in in taking some of the best elements um, from from different cultures around the world and integrating it, you know, in, in, into its own. Yeah, and and I know that teams have struggled with that at times as well. Like we we were quite well aware when I was at Brentford and and even Michelland of needing to to have somebody on hand to help players adapt. Like you talked, like if you need a plumber or to help you find an apartment or where you should live or like, you know, uh, food is always a, an issue and, and being comfortable with that type of stuff. But for Mitchelland, you know, fairly small place up in Herning and, and Icast, um, like 20 and 40,000 people in, in those two places. And uh, we had started to look at South America as like a really interesting place and probably undervalued Colombia for us to be able to potentially recruit guys. And we got a lot of pushback from the club that actually made a lot of sense because they're like, look, 
we just don't have the infrastructure here to like make Latin American players or, or South American players at all comfortable. So like right now, unless we build that and we need like a couple of people on staff to be able to help them, like we can't do it. And, and that's, that's true too. You see a lot of um, that sort of liaison officer that you talk about or whatever, or um, sometimes football operations, people have multiple people on staff to speak different languages to help bed these players in and make sure that they're comfortable because they have enormous salaries and they're now assets they have to take care of. Yeah, there's a, there's a great piece by my my colleague at ESPN. If I could plug my own website uh, on uh, player liaison officers, and some some of the the requests that they get uh, from players, which uh, which is up on the site now, it came out a couple of days early. There's a lot of stories like that. There's one guy who's very, uh, I well, you mentioned there's club li- player liaisons officers, and then at certain clubs, especially in London, these are the ones I'm more familiar with, but also there's a famous guy uh, in Liverpool as well were kind of like professional player friends. Right. They would source things for... The you know, fixer. Maybe the fixer, yes. Like one guy who served that role for DDA Drogba and a host of other uh, players at Chelsea and I think a couple Arsenal players. And, you know, it really was like a full-time job. And, you know, and, and that, was, that was necessary back then because, and you'll appreciate this, I remember Gianluca Vialli when he was manager at Chelsea... And they had just signed Graham Lasso for, I think they just taken him back to the club for something like five million pounds from Blackburn. And he complained and he said, ah, you see, the problem with this club is that you can get five million pounds to buy a left back, but you can't get 500 pounds to buy a fax machine. Um, which, which I think is, is a wonderful quote because it kind of, there's a lot in there. Obviously, the, the ethos of clubs at the time, which were just like, well, we'll give you money. You know, now get on with it. But also the fact that um, A, fax machines were a thing. And B, that, you know, Gianluca Vialli actually thought that a fax machine cost 500 pounds. I think it's kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he shops for his own fax machines. No. So the the professional player friend thing, um, there's a a story that I I understand from the days of... um, you remember the Jailblazers era from the the NBA? I know you follow some American sports. Maybe not this closely. But the the jailblazers existed, and and basically my you know I, I've heard this secondhand, but but Paul Allen just like was like I cannot fucking deal with this anymore. I'm tired of being in the press in a negative way all the time. You people have to fix this. Like get rid of all the guys that are assholes, and then make sure this doesn't happen again. Because like I do not want my my team associated with this, and it's just endless. And so what they they realized was that. They, they had all these sort of, you know, 20 year old kids that were basketball players and they didn't they would go on the road and they did not know what to do. And plenty of them, you know, come from sort of less well off upbringings and you know may have friend circles that that are a little rough. And what they needed to do and what they what they discovered was they they had to have somebody that was just in charge of finding activities for these guys to kill time on the road because it is just super boring traveling. You have a shoot around. You play at night. I have to kill a bunch of time. And so they they had a guy who, um, you know, they they packed trunks full of like PlayStations and and Xboxes back in the day to make sure they had video games. They had board games. Uh, This guy would uh, schedule like cooking classes for them in different places, potentially for their their girlfriends as well. Um, you know, Manchester City has cooking classes for the, the academy uh, kids' parents because it's still really important. Um, I heard from somebody uh, just today that, that Huddersfield had given you know, the, the parents, while the kids were kind of not allowed to come in, like really specific diets that they're supposed to cook. And the parents are just like drowning under these requirements because they're, you know, I can barely cook 
two meals a day for my my kids and have a job and everybody else's uh, parents are the same way as well but anyway so like the that, that that sort of professional friend and finding ways for professional athletes to kill time in in a positive way that doesn't involve gambling necessarily that probably involves golfing as, as many of them love to do although less so in england because the weather's terrible um so anyway american sports I know that you are an absurdly passionate fan of one particular team. Can you fill us in on, one, how that started? I think I have a guess. And two, the extent to which you follow this team, which I have found fascinating. Okay. So are you referring to the fact that I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles? Fly, in the NFL? Eagles, fly. That is correct. Yeah. So... Um, well, the, the way it happened was, you know, as a kid growing up when I was in school, like I said, I my last two years of high school were here in London. I I was way into football. I was a big, big fan. I mean, the English football, Italian football, and, you know, what, this was pre-Champions League, a European Cup and whatever. I lapped up everything I could. Um, and when I went to the, and, you know, I'm, I liked American sports. I followed them from a distance. But when I went to the U.S., what I loved was, and, and this was maybe you know more a function of of being in Philly um, than elsewhere, was you have like you know if you're a football fan on this side uh, in the old world of the Atlantic, uh, you know you're gonna there's a natural ebb and flow to the week, right? So you know you have a game at the weekend, then you might spend you know some Sunday and Monday reflecting back on the game, and then you start looking forward to the next game, and you have the build up. And of the American sports, the only one that they really offered that was was football. And, you know, that's what the Philadelphia Eagles, and this is how I got into it initially, that's what they gave. You know, they played the weekend. I mean, you know, I remember Randall Cunningham would always get hurt early in the season and there'd be a big problem and stuff. And so, you know, that would happen on a Sunday. And then Monday, and you know, you'd review the game. And then Tuesday, oh, my God, what do we do without Randall? And then Wednesday, you get an injury report. Thursday, you start looking ahead. And it was that kind of granular, all-consuming attention that was paid to it. And, and that's what I really enjoyed. Um, and I think more broadly, that's what I kind of enjoy in, in sports coverage um, is the ability, because I think a lot of fans are like that. A lot of fans, and I find this a lot, especially with the coverage of, of lower division football here in England, a lot of the fans know more than you know the people who appear on television and in media writing about it because they spend more time worrying about it, you know? Sure, and, and following it and being passionate about it and being on the forums. I think this time period, like we're, we're recording this during the, the pandemic lockdown, like, man, you find out an awful lot about what you care about and, and why sport matters to you. Like, why am I doing this? Well, I, I feel the absence, you know, and, and what that means. And sometimes it's a friend group. Sometimes it's just like something to distract you from from your job or your life that might be a little bit boring or, or just, you know, tough to deal with. And sometimes it's just like, you know, it's fun. Like, I like seeing this. I like seeing the, the expertise and the skill on, on display. It, it, it's that. I think it's also, it's the expertise. It's also then... I mean, you know, you mentioned how I follow uh, the Eagles. So I, you know, I read the Philadelphia Inquirer. I have a subscription to them. I have a subscription to uh, to the Athletic. I obviously read ESPN.com's coverage. I listen to podcasts, Bleeding Green Nation, and Go and Go Birds. 
Um, you, listen, and you listen to Sports Talk Radio. <laughs> sports Radio, yeah, WIP, previously 610 WIP, now 94 WIP. I have a VPN which allows me to listen live. I also listen to their podcast continuously. <laughs> and part of it, you know, part of it is repetitive, admittedly, but part of it is also I like the fact that when the game is out there, you know, you get little nuggets, you know, you'll notice, you know, what the right guard, Brooks, is actually doing which most people would never pay attention because there's so much going on in an NFL field or, you know, an American football field at the time. And, you know, I, I like that. It, it's satisfying. You look for clues. And, and I find that in some ways when I, you know, cover the football I get paid to cover, when I watch games, I, a lot of times I'll, I'll, try to focus, I'll try to focus on that. I'll, I'll try to look at things like, like shape and what's happening tactically. And I'll often look for you know, since we know who the better players are and what we often ignore is that, you know, and you're, you're the analytics guy. You might tell me I'm completely wrong, but um, I don't know. Dwight McNeil versus um, Jack Grealish, for example. Jack Grealish is a better player. He's more famous, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? When Jack Grealish doesn't have a great game, and Dwight McNeil has a good game, all of a sudden, the difference between the two, um, you know, the, 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 the power ratio uh, shifts. And maybe Dwight McNeil has the upper hand in that particular game. Maybe he has the upper hand because of things other people are doing on the pitch. Um, I, I love that side of things. Uh, you know, we can all name as individuals which players are better than other players. But on the day, there's little tweaks that will make one team more likely to win or even if they're not more likely to win it'll make one team win because as you know better than most with your background ted uh it's a low scoring sport and the better team doesn't always win you know i i I, I like the guys so one of my i i started following soccer i guess football in 1998 world cup and obviously a very good time to follow it when i was you know not around the same time i guess before you moved to london um just after uh, we could get like Fox Sports World would give us a two hour EPL wrap up uh, in the evening that was basically a match of the day equivalent. And it was amazing to follow, but it was actually really hard to get the games live. Uh, you could pay like pay-per-view that was super expensive, like 10 or $15 a game or something like that. And um, and then MLS- Sorry, can I just jump in there? Sure. What do you love to know? Like, all right, back then, 1998. Yeah. Like there must've been some executive, whoever had the rights and says- yeah, you know what the correct business model for us is? And yeah, Premier League, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy the rights, and then we're going to charge people yeah. $15 a game on pay-per-view. Pay-per-view, which I'm guessing is only available in probably like 10% of cable systems nationwide. Yeah. This is a really good business model for us to follow. We'll show you. But you, you, like, you ever about wonder how different it was back then, and they just want the extra money, right? They don't, they don't necessarily realize that like growing the game is their biggest possible path to lots of money. No, so true. <laughs> Give me the extra 15, 20 bucks a week from some kid in the United States that suddenly likes us. But anyway, the ML- M- MLS was on then as well. And one of the guys that I liked was uh, was Chris, Chris Armas. And Chris Armas was a defensive midfielder, pretty stocky, smaller guy. But his job was to just make everybody else's job easier. A bit like Reno Gattuso, right? Like Gattuso was out there to like, you know. I thought you might say Mike Burns or Britt Hager, but sure, like Reno Gattuso, yeah. Well, I, I was trying to keep it relevant to people who would know, <laughs> you know. All right. Um, so quick, one more question before we dive into like a, a much bigger topic. 
when did you start to become interested and or aware of like the football analytics world? Also, if, if you haven't seen, I've, I've put um, some young Gabby Marcotti pictures up here. Uh, the guy on the left looks like he could get into some serious trouble. I don't, and, and the guy on the right is judging you. He's judging you for every opinion you might have in the media. Thank you. That guy was on the Times, uh, the game podcast, and he did judge every one of you. So there you go. But uh, yeah, so when did you start coming across the nerds? Well, I think like like a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of it had to do with uh, with the Michael Lewis book, um, you know, more broadly in, in, in sports. You know, I, I always... I always wondered about it, um, and, and being, you know, being a natural, natural-born contrarian, who you know, one of whose heroes was Christopher Hitchens, um, a very underrated book, his Letters to a Young Contrarian, which he wrote in one of the saner periods uh, of his of his life, I think. Um, you know, if you remember the early days of stats, I, to me, it seemed like a big con job because there was so much, so many bad numbers out there yeah uh badly collected numbers numbers that made no sense and you would get people appearing who you know kind of spoke as if this is gospel and i thought to myself oh my god look at that freaking weirdo right um <laughs> but then what what did get me thinking though was you know when when i read um the, the, the Michael Lewis book, and I was already familiar with Michael Lewis from before, from, you know, Liar's Poker and whatnot, was this idea of, you know, of, of, of the metaphysical, right? The idea of those people who, you know, and it's obviously one of the conflicts in the book, right, where I guess he has, like, the fat guy who, who walks all the time, but he's considered rubbish because he looks funny and he's fat, um, versus the other guy who I guess was Billy Bean himself as a kid who was this phenomenal athlete but never quite panned out. And it's kind of like when sort of the, for lack of a better word, the non-analytical people, they look at, you know, the, the, the components that make up a great athlete and they're, always, they're, they're really using it to, protect, to project forward, right? So if I have a guy who's very agile and very fast and very strong, even though he might not have produced anything thus far, I can project forward in that way. Sure. Whereas the statistical people or the analytics people, uh, you know, again, I think about the early era, right? They're projecting backwards. And then I forget who the fat guy in the book, in the micro, was it, was it Nick Swisher I'm thinking of? That sounds about right, yeah. Right. I thought to me, okay, what they're doing is really interesting, but fundamentally they're projecting backwards. And then it dawned on me that I said, well, there's 162 games. So even if they're projecting backwards, it's likely that if this guy walked a lot last year, he'll walk along a lot next year. And that's when I thought, all right, can this stuff be translated into football? And my first instinct was like, yeah, except the problem with football is that there's no data whatsoever. Uh, so let me put this idea to one side until – until people started coming along later and people I, you know, started publishing stuff on, on social media. Obviously I saw some of your posts on, on Twitter back when you had a horrible picture of yourself where you just kind of looked like a dick, I have to say, uh, like a know-it-all, like a child, but whatever. Um, Darren Altman was another guy 
who I really enjoyed. I guess um, I deserve that for, for popping up your old pictures here, which I, I think are uh, they're good. You go back and find some of your old. Dan Altman, by the way, had a very unflattering picture of himself. Is a picture that made it look as if like he was all nose and nothing else. I, <laughs> he's again, he has improved his pictures uh, since then. Uh, it's amazing now that you guys are all successful. You guys can all get professional photographers to to go and, and take care of it. We don't, yeah, but un unlike the people in the media, uh, <laughs> I would say uh, this is actually not true. At our last team day, we did get a professional photographer in. It's, it's not a great picture of me, so I'm going to be the grumpy person in uh, in my current image. Uh, you know, yeah. Anyway, all right. So you came across us and decided that we weren't all clueless or assholes. No, no, I, I didn't think that before. But I always thought like I like their ideas, but it's all contingent on on the data, right? And I thought that until the data gets substantially better, you know, I don't know what it means. Like, if you remember, I mean, again, this is old hat to you, but to me, I remember early on, people were talking about sort of shot ratios, right? And the idea of, well, if you take more shots on goal, more shots on target, whatever, it's meaningful. And I was like, well, well, how is it meaningful? I mean, if a team plays at a higher pace than the opposition, then they'll take more shots and maybe they're taking more bad shots. And, you know, I don't have this information. I need better data right now. This isn't really meaningful. And obviously now that we have shot locations, all this other stuff, I, I think it is more meaningful. Yeah. More meaningful, but still not perfect. And that's part of the fun, right? Like it's you, you especially get to write about things that are between the lines, you know, like you can, you can use the information as a, as a background for you and you can discuss, you know, Hey, we're pretty sure that they, they had 35 shots to one and they got a bit unlucky not to pull out a win on this one. Um, but you know, you, you still have plenty of story that you can tell in there and you can tell more about the why of it, um, with maybe a little better grounding overall. Um, so I, I wanted to, to move on to your, your recent stuff because like we're in the middle of an unprecedented time of crisis, especially for football. Uh, I know your your story this week um, was talking about the potential of a FIFA bailout fund. Can you sort of flesh that out for us, and then you know tell me tell me like what the the crux of this is and and how it might help, or even if it's possible. Okay, so well, first I go back to somebody I know at FIFA who's who's made the analogy of what FIFA should be. Um, and isn't yet for many different reasons, which is that he says, you know, in a perfect world, FIFA would be, we FIFA would be a development organization, right? Like the World Bank, for example. Um, they would give grants to people who need it. They would have people in the field showing them how to spend the money um, and helping them develop the game around the world rather than, you know, what they often are. They do give away a lot of money, but they also have a lot of people, you know, stuck in a building. And if you take that argument forward, and this is part of what FIFA has been looking at, FIFA have, you know, sizable cash reserves. It's something like $2.7 billion. And again, you know, for context, UEFA, which is really the only other confederation which has any significant reserves, they have between five and $600 million, although a lot of that's going to be contingent on... You know, a lot of that might go up in smoke because they're going to make losses on moving the euros. And yeah, that make would seem like on, it's yeah. expensive and painful. And then the women's euros has to move as well, possibly. Exactly. Um, so the question is, what do we use this money for? Um, and the idea came together is, you know, football's, go football's running into a serious problem. There's a short-term 
cash flow problem, um, which you know we read about and is why uh, you know in some places um, players are being furloughed. Um, uh, why you know people are talking about um, players taking pay cuts and whatever. But we also have a problem in in the medium term and long term. I think around you know the the ecosystem. Um, in which football operates, which is that we are almost certainly headed into, um, you know, a long economic recession, a long global economic downturn, which means that while there's still a ton of rich people, uh, the rich people are going to have assets that they don't want to get rid of. They don't want to liquidate because they're worth less than what they were before. And they want to build them up again. And they want to kind of, you know, this is what, what happens. You get this negative spiral in a downturn, right? So the question is, A, in the short term, how do we keep people afloat? And B, can we create conditions so that football can go back to being what it was before the pandemic? Now, bear in mind also, in a lot of countries, we're not talking about a lot of money. Um, on our on our Gab and Jules podcast for ESPN, we had uh, Jonas Baer Hoffman on, who's the secretary general of FIFPRO. And, right. you know, he said in a lot of leagues... In Ireland, you know, we're talking low single-digit millions, and we can save professional football in Ireland. Sure. No, I, um, I think solving this problem at the at the smaller scale, where where teams do not have these massive sort of guaranteed outlays over the next three to four years, which is what the Big Five contracts look like, or even the championship contracts look like, like those ones are pretty straightforward, right? Like you can go into Croatia, Serbia, Ireland, Denmark, Norway, uh, Sweden. And probably backstop them with like, you know, 20 million without too much of a problem. The problem comes at the very top end of the pyramid where they've had all this money. But people have been talking about how badly run they are, how much money goes toward expenditure versus revenue, right? Like some of these these teams are paying more in wages than they actually bring in in a year. Uh, You know, gambling to get up in the Premier League, gambling to stay in the Premier League. And and that's where it's it's super complicated and to figure out. But yeah, I I get where you're at. Yeah, it's so. So the issue is, well, I mean, you asked about FIFA's money. I don't think FIFA are just going to go and give away all their money, but um, they're talking about establishing a fund. There's a bunch of things that they can do. Different confederations step in. They could guarantee loans. Um, you know, same way that you know some people are fortunate enough when you know they get their first mortgage, their their, their parents might co-sign the loan. Uh, FIFA's credit is very good. They could even borrow against future um, income. Create a pool of money. And almost turn it into a big stimulus bill for football. Sure. Now, there's two huge problems with this, Ted. <clears throat> Number one is how do you decide who gets the money and how to spend the money? Yeah. Given that, as we all know, there's a lot of bad actors in football, um, from club owners to agents to middlemen to managers to I mean, you know, it's it's pretty shocking what what goes on and not just at the very top. It's but. not as bad as it used to be though. I think that it's better than it was. I don't know. Okay. I genuinely don't know. Um, I think in some ways, well, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I think by in some ways I think it's worse. Um, we haven't had a cases. recent calcio poly. <laughs> but that, but that's, that's entirely different though. I I'm know, talking I know. about, you know, money laundering stuff off the books, sure, conflicts okay. of interest, I but, and it's calcio poly. So, um, but you know the the other the other big issue is last time FIFA gave away money well not last time because they've done it all along but the reason FIFA had this massive scandal and got themselves in a whole bunch of trouble 
is because they gave away money and they created a system of patronage around the world with a whole number of extremely dubious people. And it's not me saying it. It's the Department of Justice and FIFA's own ethics committee who's banned a lot of guys for life. You know, they were basically synonymous with corruption, right? They, the timing of that report and that information coming out and the FIFA emergency sort of bailout fund is pretty awkward, I think, in, in people thinking that, oh, yeah, this will be no problem. This is very straightforward. This is anything but straightforward uh, at this point. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you stories about FIFA now. I mean, when the new FIFA administration came in, for example, you know, they, they still give away money. They give away more money than before. But um, they have, you know, pretty stringent measures in terms of, you know, you can't just apply for $3 million. You have to then justify it. you got to put it out to tender locally. There's people who go and check on this. And as a result, there's still a lot of money that remains unclaimed because people in some parts of the world have difficulty filling out forms. Um, at one point, and I hope it's, um, I hope the situation has improved since then, but I heard this straight from the FIFA president, John Infantino, um, you know, Infantino. confederations um, have different committees and stuff like that of people who kind of administer funds locally and whatever. And what FIFA said is like, look, if you're going to have access to FIFA money, you need to, we need to go, you need to be vetted. We're going to do a background check on you. Uh, and, you know, you need to have a disclosure to make sure that there's no conflict of interest, which is a pretty standard thing, right? That does um, seem like a normal thing, yes? Yeah, not just that, but to avoid embarrassing people, they also said, hey, here's two FIFA employees, two FIFA paper pushers. Why don't you check with them if, you know, your cousin Bob, who you want to put in charge of this thing, if he's going to make it through the vetting process so you don't submit him and then get rejected, right? Almost like a pre-approval thing. Despite the pre-approval thing, and again, this may have changed. This is, what, a year and a half ago I spoke to him. He said 20% of the names put forward by the confederations failed the FIFA integrity test. Oh, even God. now, <laughs> even when they know they're being tested, even when they can find out ahead of time if they're going to pass or not, they still submit these jokers thinking, you know, so that all has to change. And so, you know, what I talked about in my piece is, FIFA can lead the way in raising the funds. Ideally, you would have a board of people and they might be economists and auditors. And ideally, even I wouldn't even have football people involved because I don't know to what degree you can trust them. And they would, you know, you would apply to them and say, make a case and say, look, I need this much to meet my expenses. Can I get, you know, an interest-free loan so that my football league here in Burkina Faso can continue for 12 months? And... In addition to that, though, and this is one of the keys, if we're going to do that, the same way the IMF does it, when the IMF gives you money, it comes with strings attached. Okay, Burkina Faso, and again, I'm just using them as an example. Uh, I have no beef with a Burkinabe FA or Burkinabe <laughs> football. We will give you, you know, money to meet costs for the 12 months. You'll pay us back on this schedule. But, by the way, you need to pass these rules in terms of transparency and you need to pass these rules in terms of good governance sure so you're so, going to go to the nigerian league and tell them that they have a disproportionately scary amount of draws and you need to stop having that many draws look there's <laughs> Sorry, different i'm, I'm flashing there's back different ways no that's no, i mean i i would i would if you were to ask me i you know we're here in england right yep. first thing i do i go to the premier league premier league you have a club in the Premier League called Wolverhampton Wanderers, ah. whose owner also owns 20% of one of the world's, if not the world's, biggest, most uh, powerful football agency. This is called a conflict of interest under any kind of ordinary uh, corporate governance. 
So either he divests himself of his shares or he divests himself of the club. He can still have his relationship with George Mendes and they can still be buddies. They can't be business partners. That would be a start. Same thing, football league. You know, you need to have rules so that people have to have X amount of liquidity set aside. Sure. So that if I'm a club owner, I can't borrow against the value of the club to prop up, you know, my car dealership over here, right? My other business. You know, this is, this is why clubs go bust. And the main thing that I would argue for is, and I've said this for a long time, and I, you know, I feel like I'm on my own here, is complete transparency. I don't just want like these weirdo redacted accounts that barely, um, you know, satisfy uh, disclosure recover, you know, uh, requirements in the Cayman Islands or in or in the British Virgin Islands or where some of these uh, dodgy holding companies are based. I want actual disclosures. I want to know how much every employee of the club, even the players, I want to know how much all these people make. I want a line item of how much what you're spending on on groundskeeping and tractors and whatever. I want to know how much you're spending on agents' fees, individualized, line by line for every deal. And I want this information to be public, not because I want, you know, some big central oversight committee, although that'd be nice too, like they have in France with a DNCG. I want all this information to be public because the best oversight is the oversight that comes from the fans. So if I'm the owner of a League One club and I'm doing dodgy things, I don't have to sit there and wait for the Football League investigation. I have to put all my stuff online where it's consultable. And I might have 500 fans of my club and a local blogger going through the numbers and saying, well, wait a minute. Why did you go and, like, you know, hire your brother's laundry company to, to go and launder the kits? Is this okay? Did you put it out the tender? This is how we create integrity. And if we're going to view football as a little bit, at least, as a public trust, that has some kind of community value and – um then I think this is necessary. That's something and, I've really come around on, sort of the public trust element and how, you know, it, this is the thing that happens in the United States that it's just not possible to happen almost anywhere else in, in the world of sport now. Like, franchises can move in the United States. And actually, the leagues tend to use that as leverage to get things that they want from local governments. And here, they cannot move. Not, not in any way, shape or form like it's happened once or twice and there's been like disastrous, you know, fallout. And because they are entities that have been around for like 100 plus years in a lot of cases and they are part of the community and it's their their community good. So to me, I, I'm still I'm remark. I, I, I'm appalled in many ways. How many people actually should be failing the, the good governance test or fit and proper test? Uh, of new owners that come in, like how many people that you you could easily look up and say, "Wow, that guy might be a criminal." Like it's possible that you shouldn't necessarily sell a club to this person who is not from this country that also has like a background that is extremely sketchy and financial issues that also are you know easily yeah. look upable. Right. Or even even if they're not crooks, they might just be close to insolvent. They might sure. be chancers. Well, that's true. Um, so it's funny because I asked this question specifically of. Uh, of a very high-ranking member of the football association who um, who said to me, you know, we tell the football league, try to give yourself rules. The football league, and I think that it is a problem primarily of the football league because they're in this absurd position where, you know, they govern championship clubs who, who draw 40,000 a game and have enormous budgets as well as League Two clubs who, you know, might draw 1,500 people and have, you know, budgets of, of five grand a year, so to speak. Um, and... And he said, the problem is, 
every time the football league tries to introduce this stuff, the clubs all vote against it. Right. So later, I spoke to somebody who owns one of these clubs, and I said, "Why are you so stupid? Why don't you, why don't you go and 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 make sure the football league has real rules so that you don't have dodge pots coming in and spoiling it for everybody?" And he said, "Because the simple fact of the matter is, is most people want to be able when they get out, they want to be able to sell to whoever they want to sell. Yeah, they want to be able to sell to a dodge pot. I don't care if I'm selling it to you know." The guy from the Chinese triad who's laundering, you know, a hundred million out of Macau. I've been honest. I want to get out. He's offering me what my asking price. I'm done. I'm out of here. Sure. Right? It's, it's very much about as an applied economist. And that's what I've really been most of my adult life. Like it is about incentives and they want to keep and create as many possible incentives and, and avenues to cash in in the future as they can. It's... um. Okay, so applied economist, can I ask you a question? Well, because this is what I said. Always make things awkward for me. Go ahead. (laughs) This is what I said to the guy from the FA. I said, Greg, there's a simple thing for you to do here. If you say, oh, we'd be in favor of more oversight, but the football league won't, is it can't because the clubs vote against it, why don't you decertify the football league as the second to fourth tier of English football? Promote the National League or whatever the highest tier of non-league football is called, what it used to be known as a conference. Say, hey, guys from here will now get promoted to the Premier League unless you guys give yourself give yourselves real rules. And he kind of like laughed and go, oh, well, that will be interesting. I mean, why wouldn't that work? Why wouldn't that work in terms of using a big stick to beat these these idiots down who are destroying the championship? I don't have a good answer for that other than there'd be a lot of litigation and I'm not sure that anybody has the budget in order to withstand that. You know, and this is my thing with lawyers, right? I mean, you're from the Midwest. No doubt you're familiar with the Bible. Um, <laughs> how it says that it's easier. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. Uh, I wanna, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than it is for a lawyer to enter the kingdom of God. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the problem. It's all these bad lawyers, bad actors, and not all lawyers are bad. Some are good. But the vast majority of these people are dark souls with dark hearts who who will tell their clients whatever they want to hear and they'll litigate and waste everybody's time so all in the name of that. Ah. I'm of two minds on this. Like one, I'm, I want people who come by a club to be able to spend considerable amounts of money on this club to you know potentially improve their fortunes, right? But I don't want them to do it in a way that endangers the existence of that club. You have to you have to put in backstops that say that you know this goes in as equity and escrow and you know loans are you know within a certain perspective not allowed and whatever. But then there's this other thing where like no one ever polices it well enough to make that a reality. And so and I have some problems with like the biggest clubs, you know, pulling up the drawbridge effectively with FFP. It's like, well, we got to spend whatever we wanted to, but now no one else can. It's interesting to see UEFA, you know, finally bring down the hammer on on Man City. But you feel like that's more because they flouted the rules so strongly or allegedly, excuse me, uh, flouted the rules so strongly. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm like all over the shop on this because like a bit like Americans, they all want to turn into millionaires and billionaires. And so they leave like a really uh, a bunch of tax on the table because nobody who ever gets to that level wants to be taxed aggressively. But that's like that's not reality. That's not how it works. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the basic difficulties here, um, you know, financial fair play is something that God, I've reported on for like more than 10 years is I think there's a willingness on the part of UEFA uh, conceptually 
to relax it because what they're finding now is that there's a lot of clubs, a lot of big historical brands um, who have wealthy investors who, who want to put in money, right? That's why they introduced the so-called voluntary agreement. Um, but they can't because they've inherited terrible situations from the past and they're playing catch up and the drawbridge to some degree has come up. A lot of times it's an accident of geography, right? Simply being in the Premier League. Um, you can be nothing special in the Premier League and all of a sudden, you know, you have more money than uh, than, than 18 of the 20, oh, sorry, 16 of the 18 clubs in the Bundesliga. Right. Um, that creates a problem. The other thing, which is problematic vis-a-vis FFP, is that obviously, as you know, this ties back to what you said before about, you know, you are the, the U.S. model of sports is that, you know, you're you're mixing different business models, right? You're mixing, you know, clubs that are entirely privately owned uh, with clubs that are not nonprofits and have some sort of community basis um, with the model that they have in, in Germany, that sort of hybrid 50 plus one model. And you kind of have like all these different legislations and it's difficult to find, it's difficult to find a formula uh, that works. Personally, I, I, I think they do need to, to relax things a little bit. Well, look at Milan, right? Like Milan, Milan had new ownership come in, basically had to take over the club because the the last owner defaulted for reasons apparently couldn't get the money out of China anymore or whatever. And, yeah, right. Uh, well, whatever. That's reason, what it was. I, you know, right. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm speaking very cautiously on things like this. But you look at their their finances, and it's insane how much they're losing from basically what is already sunk costs that the owners did not have. Like they did not take on. This, this, I mean, they had to take it on, but they did not initially make the choices. These were the past owners. And so in order for this club simply to survive, like they are going to run financial losses. And then obviously there's the competitive element as well. And, you know, should they be getting crushed by, by UEFA because of this situation? I don't know. It's, I, well, I feel sorry for them. I mean, in that specific case, they kind of have a double whammy, right? Because... Two owners ago, before the Chinese guy, Li Yonghong, the last couple of years of the Berlusconi regime, the club rang up, ran up enormous losses as well. Right. Uh, Li Yonghong came in and more enormous losses. And, you know, you can you can apply for the, the way you can apply for what's called a, a voluntary agreement, which means that you're, you're allowed to have greater losses for a certain period of time as long as you. Uh, submit a credible plan about how your this is actual investment and you'll get back to break even in three to five years or whatever it is. The problem is you can't apply for a voluntary agreement if you're already under settlement agreement order, which is what happens to you if you've broken the rules. Right. So they broke the rules under Berlusconi. They broke the rules again under Li Yonghong. So when the new guys came in, they had to go and deal with that before they could even think of applying <laughs> for this voluntary agreement. And yeah, this is all stuff that they need to that that, that they need to figure out, um, you know, and, and 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 figure out, you know, how can we maintain the oversight, make sure football remains an investable business. And and by the way, to all those critics of financial fair play out there, the goal of financial fair play was not to ensure a level playing field, but to turn football as a whole, on aggregate, into an investable business. Right. So they went from 1.8 billion euros in losses Europe wide to a profit of 500 million two years ago and I think 130-odd million last year, which means now it is an investable business. Now people can invest in it. Problem is, as you say, Ted, they can't invest very much 
Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem too. So going back, before, you've been very generous with your time and I appreciate we're going to let you go in just a second. But going back to this, this FIFA fund, like, do you think that this is going to happen? And, and what does it look like? Do you have any information? I don't. I mean, I wrote a whole piece about it, and information I have is largely in there. Is it likely? No, sorry. I, I'm, I mean, you have the information that is, is there. It's detailed. I just like, is it going to happen? Because we have this, the report on the, the bribery stuff, and that still sort of clouds it. And right. you talk about the discomfort right. of UEFA or FIFA handing out money again. Yeah, look, I mean, the bribery stuff, and you can read the whole DOJ thing. It's online. Some of the, some of the stuff is really funny. You, like you'll find out, for example, that a man named uh, Eugenio Figueiredo. This is my favorite little nugget, and I think you'll appreciate this. He was the um, uh, he was the head of the Uruguayan FA. He was on the FIFA executive. He was, I think, a vice president of Commonwealth. Um In addition to all these dubious, um, all, all, all these other uh, allegations that are in the indictment. Um, there's also counts against him for defrauding the, uh, the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Service in the U.S. And this is because he became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And two of the counts in there relate to him. When, when, when you apply to, to, to for naturalization in the U.S., you have to talk about what your source of income was in the previous five years and what you did for a living. And apparently he filed and said that his only source of income was being employed by a company called Decorative Rocks, which presumably make decorative rocks somewhere in California, you know, without mentioning that he was also president of the Uruguayan FA or had this FIFA role, which plays, paid him hundreds of thousands. And the other thing is you have to take a, a, a test, a civics test in English or Spanish, I think. And he said he couldn't take the test because he had dementia. And this is while he was running, you know, a multi-million dollar enterprise. Look, so Decorative Rocks is a very easy business to run. <laughs> clearly. But... I mean, I want to stress that all of this has to do, all the indictments have to do with stuff that, that happened, you know, before 2015. A lot of this stuff happened on a regional basis. Um, put it this way, I, you know, you look at the sale of television rights, commercial rights, marketing rights, not just to FIFA competitions, but to Commonwealth, to CONCACAF, especially in the Americas, which is what's, you know, what the main concern of the DOJ indictment is. Right. And there's a lot of questions to be asked. The encouraging thing is, None of the people at the top at FIFA now were involved back then. So we shouldn't paint the current FIFA with that same brush, especially with regard to this fund. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's other things that you can raise questions about the current FIFA. And one of them that I mentioned is, as some people may know, the relationship between FIFA on one hand and UEFA and Commonwealth, the, the South American Confederation, isn't very good right now. And part of it has to do with the Club World Cup and Part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, FIFA saying, well, we want to create a Club World Cup, like the real World Cup, but with club teams. Uh, we want to make it 24 teams and we'll play it in China. Of course, that's been moved because of the, the, the pandemic. And they said, this is going to be a real money spinner. And we think it can net, you know, $25 billion over the next 10 years, which is an enormous sum. And, you know, UEFA and others says, okay, well, who's going to come up with these $25 billion? Where's this money coming from? Right. And, you know, FIFA were like, oh, well, you know, you don't really need to know this quite yet. And we'd rather not share it. And, you know, now we know it was a fund and put together by a Japanese bank called SoftBank with Saudi money, whatever. But it's that kind of there's a serious lack of trust, I think, or, you know, between UEFA and FIFA. That is one of the things that uh, could scupper this. But all told, if they can put this money together 
And if they can hand it out in the right way, with the right oversight, with strings attached, um, then I think I, I, I think we can, you know, not so much save football because I would assume football, you know, like roaches will probably be around after the uh, asteroids hit. But you know, help football get out of of the crisis it's inevitably going to find itself in much quicker if it's done properly so you and i both agree on this there is deep pain coming if nothing were to change right now without some sort of fund like the there's so much that's been guaranteed in contracts is locked in there's so much uncertainty around revenue like many clubs as you noted in your piece like they they need match day revenue which now is going to disappear and there's no way that the media companies are going to make up for that match day revenue it is in some cases catastrophic if they cannot have if they're playing football but basically can't get fans in in the stadia and there are a lot the the whole world football organization and and economic cycle is funded by people who are very rich that are okay with their football club which is sort of a passion thing running losses what happens if the world loses an awful lot of money including the rich people who no longer have that level of liquidity like they just stop funding their football clubs and then boom 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 the bankruptcies all kick in yeah so here i think it becomes it becomes an issue of timing right because i while obviously the picture you paint is pretty apocalyptic you know there is one wonderful thing from an owner's perspective about the football industry which is that at most clubs, you're spending between about 50 to 80% of your costs are labor costs, right? And it's not like having a factory or a workforce where, you know, you're on the hook uh, for these things for life. Um, every year, 20 to 25% of your, 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 your squad, i.e. your costs, leave because contracts expire, right? right? Uh, not just that, but you can also sometimes sell players and get money back. Right? It's not a nice one. Um, so you, if you know that costs has to have to be lowered, you know there is a way that you can negotiate and transition this. You know, you can cut costs over time uh, at football clubs, um, and you can do it pretty quickly. I think quicker than than in many other industries, um, and you can make it work. The problem is right now is we have this is we have this short term cash flow that we talked about. We have the uncertainty over whether the TV companies are going to pay up and for how much and how much of a hit they're going to take there, which makes planning difficult. And I think we have a longer term uncertainty and I don't want to bore people with accounting stuff, but the way clubs account for players, if you look at, you know, Barcelona's balance sheet, you'll see that, you know, they have like what, like six or 700 million of it is the value of their playing squad. Right. Contracts are treated as assets because they can be traded for money. Yeah, and that's kind of theoretical, right? Because, you know, if there's a sudden downturn, all these contracts are worth a lot less. And right, and one no thing that we write down 50% of their, their playing contracts because in many cases it would completely destroy their financial structure. Precisely, and that's what this fund can address. You can create some financial tools to help clubs navigate that, to help address this situation, you have to be smart. You have to do it in a way that's transparent. You have to do it in a way that, you know, people don't take advantage of this uh, to act irresponsibly. But, you know, in that way, it's no different from from the stimulus bill in the United States, right? Oh, look, $2 trillion. Will some people try to take advantage of this? Uh, yeah, probably. You know, in a way that's unethical, probably. 
So you have to be vigilant. Yeah, but you overall, gotta, you got to police it with smart people somehow that understand the financial implications. Because you can't have those chain reactions. And Ted, one of the most striking things that was pointed out to me, and the UEFA benchmarking report that they that they publish every year is always sort of a nugget of information, is how many clubs now rely on player trading to boost revenues. And a lot of this player trading stuff is, I don't want to call it accounting sleight of hand, but a lot of it has to do with amortization and depreciation and certain moves that are made for reasons that only seem to have to do with the balance sheet. And that enables owners not to put in more equity. And, and that's something that, you know, they need to look at and see how to police that. Sure. All right. So I've got one last picture up on the, up on the, the stream right now, and it's you talking about Nabi Keita back in the day. And I this was my favorite one that I dug out when I was looking at pictures to throw up there. I call this one Gabby Keita. That's it. <laughs> thank you. That's all I Thank got. you. Well, thank, thank you, you so much for all of your time and your wisdom and your insight into the world of football. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk to you again sometime. Sounds good. My pleasure. And uh, keep up the good work. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. All right, everybody, that was Gabriel Marcotti. Uh, thank you for tuning in on today's edition of the Stats Bomb podcast and the live pod. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up because I've got some meetings that I'm going to be late to otherwise. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I we will be back next week at 3 p.m. UK time for the live pod with James and myself. And then on Thursday of next week, I believe we are going to record with Oliver Bartlett, who is a sports scientist and... Uh, leading trainer. Uh, he's been with Roger Schmidt over the years. He was also at Borussia Dortmund, I believe. Uh, so we're going to dig into his life and, and his knowledge and see if we can uh, learn some new stuff. Thanks a, a lot. Keep listening. And uh, and if you need anything, we're around on social media, StatsBomb and StatsBomb.com. Cheers. Bye.